0: Ready? Happy pub day to you. Happy pub day to you. Happy pub day, dear Ariel. Happy pub day to you. Hi, this is Katherine Lasota, host of LIC Reading Series, a monthly event at LIC Bar in Long Island City, Queens. In this episode of our podcast, you're going to hear the readings from our November 13, 2018 event, which featured Heather Abel, Nanuqua Brew Hammond, and Ariel Schrag. November 13, 2018 was also the publication date for Ariel Schrag's Part of It, a graphic memoir. And so, when Ariel was reading, she was also projecting drawings from the book. But I do believe the reading holds up even without seeing the images. And as you know, we're very proud to be in Queens at LIC Reading Series, so I ask each of our readers to share a brief anecdote about Queens before reading from their work. If you want to hear the panel discussion from this event, just listen to our next episode. And now let's jump into LIC Reading Series with our readings from November 13th, 2018, starting with Heather Abel. Uh, We're going to start tonight with Heather Abel. Yeah. Heather Abel's debut novel, The Optimistic Decade, on the table over here, was published last year. It was an indie next pick and received praise from the New York Times, People Magazine, New York Magazine, and the Seattle Times, among many other places. Her essays have appeared widely and they're really good, um, including in the New York Times and the online Paris Review. She received an MFA at the New School and has taught writing at the New School, Lane College, UMass Amherst, and Smith College. Um, P.S. She lives in Northampton, Massachusetts, so she's traveled to be here because Queens is like a beacon that draws in all the good writers. <laughs> And she, so Heather was raised in California. She spent some time living in the high desert of Colorado. And I think you will see that influence in the beautiful descriptions of the land and also the people in the land in the optimistic decade. Um, LSC Reading Series alumna Mira Jacob says that Abel has, quote, the ability to bring both the spectacular and the intimate to life. And Heather, you received a glowing starred review from Publishers Weekly called The Optimistic Decade a politically and psychologically acute debut, and also says that you combine a wry sense of humor with compassion towards all of your misguided characters. Let's give a big round of applause to Heather.
1: Thank you. It is very nice to be here by the fire. My goodness, it's like the coziest... So my book actually came out this year. I think I sent you a bio that I was going to use next year, and so I was like, "It came." So it came out this May, which is this year still. But this is by far the coziest reading I've done. It was six months ago. Um, here it is. Let me think about what I was going to say. So many things to say. I'm going to give you a queen's anecdote, but I'm going to fold that queen's anecdote into a little description of the book because it folds in so well. Um, So I graduated from college many, many years ago, and I moved from college to Colorado to this tiny little town on the western slope of Colorado. And if any of you have spent some time in like the beautiful Alpine Aspen Mountains of Colorado, has anyone been there? So this is nothing like that. Um, this is very scrubby brush, very dry, no, you know, and very desolate, and not a lot of people there. A mining ranching area, and I moved there to write for an environmental newspaper. And I got there, and I was like, "Okay, this is it. This is where I will spend the rest of my life. I, this is this is me. This is it." And I did not fit in at all. First of all, at the time when I lived there, and the internet has changed this, but it was 1995, and there were no people. Very few people between like the ages of 20 and 35. And the other thing is that I was not a miner or a rancher or a hippie, really. I mean, not of this sort of hippie. And um, also, I'm Jewish, and I'm from a city, and there were not people, there were no Jews. Um, and there still are no Jews. I gave a reading, and someone was like, I drove, I lived there, and I had to drive two hours to celebrate Passover. Um, anyway, so that is very, it's a hardship there. Um, but I didn't fit in. But I was thought, I want to live here forever, and I, I was very critical of the history of Western, you know, the Western expansion and people moving into the West and saying, like, now I will live here and I will remove the people who have been here before. And yet I had that feeling like I want to create my own world here. But I left to go to grad school and I moved to New York. And I got to New York, which is where I fit in in many cultural ways and my ancestors are from. And I got here and I hated it. I'm sorry, I did. I really love it. Now, I wish I could move here from Northampton, but I hated it. And I was in grad school and I was walking to, I tell this story sometimes, I'm walking to my family Thanksgiving. And right now my cousin is here and we are planning our family Thanksgiving. So, which is next week, wish us luck. But I was walking to it back when the older people planned it. And um, I had a really, this realization, like you do when you figure out your life. And I realized I'd been reading about the communes, um, and I grew up really thinking a lot about communes and utopian communities and alternative worlds, and I was reading about the ones from the 60s because I didn't like living in New York, and I realized that I was going to move to New York and start a commune, and it was like this amazing revelation, and I had two hours where I was the happiest I think I've ever been in my life. I was like, this is it. This is what I'm doing with my life. I get to leave here. I'm going to bring all my friends. We're going to move to Western... Colorado in the middle of nowhere. And then two hours pass with my family, and I realize I am not someone who starts a commune. Um, I'm very ambivalent. So if I was someone who was like, we will all go like this, I would then say, actually, let's let's do it a different way. Um, and also, I love nature. I love to be in nature. I make people go into nature with me, and I'm terribly scared of nature. So when I lived in Colorado, if there was a lightning storm in Utah, I would like run screaming. So it would be hard. And... Um, And so I just realized then that I wasn't going to write, I wasn't going to move to Colorado to start a commune, but I was going to write a novel about someone who was, and that's where this came in. But I still believed I would move back to Colorado to write the novel. I would just be a writer there. And then Queens happened to me. Well, first, okay, it wasn't real. I mean, I have to, okay, it was this person, this guy I met in (laughs) Manhattan. And I liked him. He seemed like, you know, we were going out and he seemed like a good guy. But I kept saying, I'm moving to Colorado. I'm going to move to Colorado. And he's a real New Yorker. He was born in New York. He loves New York. He wants to be in New York forever. And he said, okay, okay, you're going to, you're going to. And then he took me one day, I think it was our first anniversary, to the Jackson Diner here in Queens. And he gave me as a present, he's like this, he's he's not a very romantic like present giving person. I don't think he's given me a present since. Um, This was 19 years ago or 18 years ago. But he gave me a copy of Delirious New York. Does anyone know that book by Ram Coolhouse? Anyways, it's an amazing New York book. And I realized, oh, shit, I'm not going to ever move back to Colorado. I'm going to marry this person. And now he made me live in Northampton, Massachusetts. And that's, so that's, that's that. So that's my Queen story. So thank you, Queens, for having me not live in this place. Uh, And so this book came out six months ago, and I've been telling sort of some sort of version of this story. Uh, This is, you know, this is why I ended up writing about this guy named Caleb who moved to Colorado to start a commune. And I realized a couple weeks ago I was leaving something out, which is... Part of the reason I wasn't going to start a commune is by the time I started this book when I was in my 30s, every organization I'd ever been a part of, and I was mostly kind of like radical lefty political organizations or, um, yeah, that was pretty much it, or newspapers, Mm -hmm. nonprofit newspapers were run by men. And even though I was raised a feminist by feminists, I didn't have this idea of a woman leading any one of those groups. And so I realized, so part of this story is the story of a young woman who believes, you know, who was raised by real radical lefties, raised marching, raised um, on picket lines, and comes to this realization that she's been sort of following them blindly for a long time. And so I'm actually going to read a part of the book that is not in Colorado. Most of it takes place on this utopian summer camp, um... And I'll tell one more thing about it, which is the utopia, the the place in Colorado where this guy Caleb comes in 1983 has just been taken over by a multinational corporation, much like Amazon, except it's called Exxon. So it has a different product. And Exxon came into the place and said, guess what? We're going to put in billions of dollars and create thousands of jobs. And it didn't work out so well. So... Queens, that is a lesson for you. And Caleb comes in after that place is decimated. And a lot of the conflict of the book is the conflict between this sort of young utopian Jew and the ranchers and miners who have grown bankrupt living there. But towards the end of the book, you don't need to know, you don't need to have read the book to hear this bit. It's 1990 and Rebecca, having grown up as a total activist, like that's her whole identity, Um, has decided she can't do it anymore. She doesn't believe in it at all anymore. This is a book about hope and despair. And you'll see it comes towards the end, but there's a little more hope at the end. So you should read it and get to the end. But this part is not the hope part. Um, So (laughs) I will read it to you. One thing that happened in the six months since I published my book is I had to start wearing reading glasses. Here they are. Okay. So this is 1990, and Rebecca, the whole summer has passed on this utopian summer camp. Things have fallen apart. She's lost all of her ideals, and she's sitting in a, um, her dorm room. Four weeks before the Persian Gulf War, six out of the seven members of Students United for Justice committed a misdemeanor by unfurling a banner from an overpass on I-80. Rebecca, who had, back in May, conceived of this action, everything done by Students United for Justice was called an action, was not among them. At the time, Rebecca was eating dinner with Michelle, the roommate assigned to her in late August when Rebecca had told the Dean of Students, that she could no longer move into the Peace and Justice Cooperative because each of the three nouns in the name of the Peace and Justice Cooperative held a promise that could never be fulfilled. Similarly, (laughs) as we've seen, this was just 1990 and things have changed. Similarly, Rebecca had changed her major from Third World Revolt and Media Studies to English. And... And she had been surprised to find that her new classmates cared deeply about made-up people and their made-up problems. The dinner Rebecca and Michelle were eating during the action was dinner only in the temporal sense. It was dinner time. Michelle, who was pre-med, had taught Rebecca many things, including the practice of bringing plastic baggies to the dining hall at breakfast, filling them with cereal, and eating the cereal dry for all other meals. They were sitting on the floor of their room, half a dozen baggies between them, as Michelle talked about Christmas. Only six days away, and she hadn't bought anything for her aunties or two nephews. Michelle's side of the room, usually neatly stacked with organic chem textbooks and color-coordinated flashcards, had lately been overtaken by gifts and wrapping paper. Michelle had, on several occasions, announced that she loved Christmas so much. The lights, the love, the presents. Michelle was a woman of surprisingly intense passions. She loved you, too, so much. She loved, she loved Peanuts cartoons so much. She loved her little figurines of Peanuts characters wearing Santa hats. She loved the gap so much, although she believed that the gap in Berkeley was a pale imitation of the gap in San Jose, which was the best gap in the world. <laughs> Rebecca had tested this theory herself when she went home with Michelle for Thanksgiving and bought, at Michelle's urging, khakis and a red v-neck at the best gap in the world. When she wore this outfit, she felt as if she were in disguise. Although, as Luke had explained to her, all clothes were costumes, everyone was posturing, there was no true immutable self between these consumer choices. We are each only the sum of our signifiers, Luke liked to say. Luke was a senior Rebecca had met in a seminar on postmodernism. After he'd eviscerated a paper she'd written, who is the dreaming animal really? Representations of the other in Kingsolver. (laughs) He'd asked her out to coffee, where he'd explained that all politics was aesthetics. Protest was an aesthetic choice. Capitalism had subsumed rebellion, making it just one more thing to purchase. Now they were dating, which meant that every week she'd sit on Luke's floor, his Panasonic cassette player between them, and he would lecture her. It was important to him that she learn which was the best Sonic Youth album, exactly when Nirvana was dialing it in. (laughs) At, (laughs) At some point in the evening, he would put on Galaxy 500, and they'd have quick sex on the floor, a jabbing in the general direction of her clitoris, a frantic humping. The main erotic actions, as far as Rebecca was concerned, had to do with the condoms. Luke standing with a foolish and gorgeous erection, searching for condoms in his dresser drawer. Luke sitting on his bed with a serious expression, tongue peeking through his lips as he unfurled the rubber slowly down the length of his dick. Luke on top of her, the smell of condom on his fingers. Luke dexterously tying the knot in the spent baggy condom, tossing it overhead into the trash basket after which Luke would take a short nap, and then the music tutorials could resume. (laughs) Sometimes Rebecca would say that she liked a song, and Luke would say no. That song was derivative, and once she knew more, she wouldn't like it. It was somewhat funny what you needed to go through in life to see the erection. (laughs) (laughs) The first time... The first time Luke visited her room, he had complimented her minimalist vibe, calling it a bold move. She hadn't taped any photos on her walls, although Michaela had sent 13 from the summer, through which she'd looked hopefully for David and found only a blur of blonde hair and red headband in one shot. Nor had she hung any of her posters, not Nuclear Power, No Thanks, or a Tom Croft 9 Danke. And then I have it in Russian and Japanese, but I, I can't say it. So, yes. But it's Nuclear Power, No Thanks, in Russian and Japanese. She did still have her five albums autographed by Pete Seeger, hidden from Luke's derision under her bed, but she understood now that any emotion she felt while listening to them was just familial sentimentality, not a response to Pete's call to action. If she'd been born to different parents, she would no doubt feel an equal upsurge listening to these parents' apolitical favorites, What a Wonderful World, maybe, or scenes from an Italian restaurant, or the Bobs, Dylan or Marley. Still, some evenings, despite her determination to be a sophomore, with sophomoric concerns, she'd tell Michelle she was too tired to study with her in the library, and Rebecca would lie in bed and listen to Pete. Not the records, she didn't own a record player, but she'd slip a cassette into her Walkman, pull on her headphones, and listen as he said... This is a quote from Pete Seeger. And the most important verse was the one they wrote down in Montgomery, Alabama. They said, we are not afraid. And the young people taught everybody else a lesson. All the older people who have learned how to compromise and learned how to take it easy and be polite and get along and leave things as they were. The young people taught us all a lesson. Then everyone would sing, we are not afraid. We are not afraid. We are not afraid today. Deep in my heart, I do believe we shall overcome someday. I just can't decide, Michelle was saying now. I mean, I pretty much figured out that I'll get Jake a Nerf basketball and Troy one of those cars you control, you know, with a remote. But for the aunties, she was torn between a scented candle or gloves, a conundrum that must have been presented as a question because she looked accusatorily at Rebecca. Are you even listening? Rebecca wasn't, not really. She'd noticed that it had started raining, hard patter hitting sideways against the glass panes of this fourth floor window. She was thinking of the other six members of the Students United for Justice. There was nowhere in the world she'd rather be than on that I-80 overpass with them in the rain and wind. They would tie a sheet to the chain link, no blood for oil, it would say, blood in red, oil in black. (laughs) They'd all wear black sweatshirts to feel like renegades, and they'd tie kerchiefs over their mouths to look like revolutionaries. The wet white sheet would cling to itself, and the writing would begin to bleed, washing the cars below with pink raindrops. Three weeks later, it would still be there, twisted, faded, because nobody cared, because all the drivers underneath were still driving, because even if they did care, none of them could prevent the war, and the cops had more important things to do than pull down torn sheets. Nothing would happen. Michelle was waving her hands. Earth to Rebecca! Earth to Rebecca! Deep in her heart, Rebecca was afraid. Well, the candles would be beautiful, she said, reaching for a bag of checks. Why don't you buy them candles? All right, I'll stop there. Thank you.
0: Let's keep it going for Heather Abel, guys. Uh, I love that line about caring about made-up people and their made-up problems we do that every month here <laughs> um yeah nanakwa nanakwa brew hammond let's all say it together Nanequa brew hammond <laughs> is the author <laughs> a thank you of powder necklace which is here um which publishers weekly called a winning debut named among 39 of the most promising african writers under 39 her short fiction was included in the anthology africa 39 new writing from Africa, south of the Sahara. Her work has also appeared in African Writing, Los Angeles Review of Books, Sunday Salon, the short story collection, Women's Work, and in uh, the books she'll be reading from tonight, yes? Everyday People, The Color of Life, a short story anthology, and that just came out, I think, in September. Yeah. Um, Also, forthcoming from Bruhambin in 2019 are a children's picture book. Do everything. And a short piece in the fiction anthology, Accra Noir. In April 2015, she was the opening speaker at TEDx Accra. Every month, Brew Hammond co-leads a writing fellowship at Manhattan Center for Faith and Work. Also noted for her personal style, which you will be able to ooh and aah at in a minute. Um, I certainly have, you look amazing. (laughs) Brew Hammond's fashion sense has been captured by New York Magazine, Essence Magazine, Paper Magazine, and the New York Times, among many other outlets. Recently, she co-founded the Made in Ghana Coat Line Exit 14, which was featured on Vogue. You just had a, a trunk show, I think. Yeah. Currently, Brew Hammond's at work on a new novel. Publishers Weekly says of Powder Necklace, her novel, it's the beauty of the prose and the resilience of the heroine make this a winning debut. And Kirkus review says of Everyday People, from which she'll be reading, um, that this is a vital, riveting anthology that emphasizes the complexity and diversity of minority experience. Let's give it up. Woo. And a
2: Everybody! Wow, it's good. is it okay? I've grown up in Queens, and this, this one is better. This one's better. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Hi, everybody. <laughs> I grew up in Queens, and I have never heard about the Long Island C- City Reading Series. So I'm so <laughs> I'm embarrassed to not have known about it, but I'm so glad that I know about it now, and it's so wonderful to meet you all um and i'm looking forward to meeting you for real after this um so i have plenty of Queens stories um but um i think i will narrow it down to writing and commuting because i used to live in queen's village which is I used to live opposite, um, across the street from Belmont Racetrack. So I don't know if anyone knows where that is, but that is um, on the border of Queens and Long Island. It's like the last stop of the last bus of the last train of everything. So anyway, um, so my commute was really long. So I actually wrote Powder Necklace mostly on the train going to and from work because it would take me about an hour and a half. The bus took about half an hour and then the train took about an hour to get to work. Um so when I moved to Jackson Heights, I would um I would take um the bus into the city because I I, I was like I was lost with the having a, a long I was lost having a shorter commute. So I, the bus would take about an hour. The Q thirty two, if everyone, if anyone ever knows about that bus, so you know about the Q thirty two. The Q thirty two is awesome. So I'll take, I'll take that, and I'll sit, and it's about an hour into um, the city, and I'll ride on the bus. So I am very familiar with all like. I know all of like the homeless people on the on the commuting lines so you know there's a guy in um in the uh, on the e-train and he is the sweetest man who he frobs at the mouth and he also loves to touch and kiss babies and um he's the sweetest man he'll be like look at this little baby and he will and most mothers are like actually fine with it. He'll, you know, he'll dip in and he'll, you know, pinch the baby's cheeks. And, you know, they're once in a while, which is, I I would think would be the opposite. Once in a while, a mother freaks out, but for the most part, they're fine. Um, There's, you know, a gentleman that um, he's um, from Puerto Rico, has a Puerto Rican flag. He's in a wheelchair and like you know, rolls through the, the, each car and he, you know, gets his money. There's a gentleman who has a dog, a seeing eye dog. And, you know, they all do that. So on the Q32 bus, for example, um, there are lots of, um, gentlemen who are, um, mentally ill. And there's one particular gentleman that like, he comes on at like a particular stop and he, you know, keeps it together for a while and then he like flips out like at a certain spot and then leaves. But this story that I want to tell you, um, is about, um, a a woman that, um, was actually on the train, on the R train heading into Queens. So I was in Brooklyn and I was really excited because I wanted to write. So I was like, okay, it's going to be like about an hour and a half commute for on this R train from Brooklyn. I'm, I'm going to be good. So I have my laptop with me. I'm really excited. I get on the train. And when I walk on, there is a woman that is laying face down on the floor. And me being a New Yorker, I like I walk over to her and I'm like, "Okay, she's breathing. She's fine. So (laughs) so I sit back. I'm like, I'm going to write this is going to be a great you know commute a great train ride and so um so i'm sitting down and the train doors are about to close and um a group of people get on the train that are obviously not new yorkers because they actually freak out about this woman on the floor and so they're like oh my goodness are you okay are you okay are you okay and the woman is just she's like moaning she's like So I'm like, oh boy. So like the New Yorkers, you could tell the New Yorkers because they're all rolling our eyes like, she's fine, leave her alone. <laughs> and these people, pu- they pull the emergency cord. <laughs> so I'm like, because I'm like, I'm. this is going to be my writing moment. This is a selfish New Yorker <laughs> in me. I'm like, I'm going to write. Who cares about that woman? She's breathing. She's fine. <laughs> so they pull the emergency cord. So fine. So now the train, you know, the, the announcement comes on, they're, you know, they're not gonna, the train is not moving for a while, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm sitting there wondering: like, is this a good thing? Like, can I write for this time while they're figuring out what's <laughs> happening with this train? Or, you know, or what? So this goes on for a while. These these wonderful people are like really concerned about this woman. They're like, we're not gonna, where does it hurt? Are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? So a train, like about maybe 10 minutes of this, and then another train rolls in like opposite. So then I'm like, you know what? This is the, the people who are supposed to come and help this woman haven't come yet. So let me just get on this train. So I'm pissed. All the other New Yorkers are pissed. They're like sucking their teeth. But right before we get off this train, this they ask her, where. so where does it hurt? Why can't you get up? And then she's like, she starts patting her crotch. She's like it hurts here. <laughs> it hurts here and that and all of us New Yorkers are like you see there was nothing wrong with this woman. So, anyway, I tell you the story because that's how I I I ended, I felt really guilty because I was like, you know what? I I am always on the train with people who are homeless or you know, mentally ill and I just kind of walk by or I just kind of assume that you know what, they're breathing, they're fine. And um, these people who were tourists like reminded me that um, humanity is important <laughs> and more important than writing. Um, so, um, so that's my queen story, anyway. <laughs> um, so I'm gonna read to you um, uh, an excerpt from Wisdom is the name of the short story that I contributed um, in this anthology, um, Everyday People. And Everyday People is a collection of stories that um, is basically, it's set all over, uh, all over the world. There is a story from London right after Brexit. There is a story set in uh, Portland. Um, there is, um, and the story in Portland is set, um, is, is about um, a gentleman who is basically broke and contemplating entering the pimp trade. There is um, my story that is set in Accra, And um, I'm from originally Ghana, and um, I grew up in Ghana, um, which is partially what my book is inspired by, Powder Necklace. Um, I grew up in Ghana. My parents sent me there from Queens um, at age 12, and um, it was a crazy experience. But what um, was kind of cool now that I look back is that um, I got to see Accra really develop. Um, Because I was there in, like, from, in 1990. And so I guess that was, like, oh, gosh, oh, my God. (laughs) That was over 20 years ago. Um, But um, seeing the way the city has developed, especially, um, they found oil in Ghana in uh, 2007-ish. And so the explosion of the economy has, like, just completely changed the city my grandmother lived and i lived with my grandmother when i lived there she lived in a um a suburb of accra um which was a relatively wealthy suburb called east legon and east legon was as as wealthy as it was like there was a dirt road that led to the junction you had to walk through a village before you got to the main road it was very sort of rustic and quaint and and all those things and um, over the last, specifically the last 10 years, there's been such an explosion of growth that like each time I go every Christmas and each Christmas I would go back and like it would be look completely differently. And they, you know, the main road would come and lots of things have happened. There's a mall, there's ma- many malls, there's like a prostitutes, there's ATM machines, there's food places, there's Kentucky fried chicken. Um, so I wanted to write about that because on one hand, um, you know, the the neighborhood has really like sort of taken off in a certain way and that development has been good in many ways, but then um, it hasn't been good. So I wanted to explore that a little bit um, in this story, uh, Wisdom. So here goes. It was long past the time of night when the prostitutes on Lagos Avenue shouted away at any car that dared slow to without intent to purchase. The kebab, wache, roast pork, and guinea fowl sellers had packed up. The drinking spots were closed. Only armed robbers, avuvies, taxi drivers, and prayer warriors were awake, and maybe watchmen, if they were good. Of the sleepless, Yao was among the first group. If you counted the two clothes hangers he had unraveled and joined to create a long, wiry accomplice, he inserted it now through a torn window net and the space between missing louvers moving the hooked extension past two bodies rising and falling in the surrender of sleep on two mattresses joined together on the floor. He directed the wire to a red dot, to the red dot of a charging cell phone, bypassing the green light of a charged laptop for the former's easier mobility. He wiggled his wrist like he was turning a key, unlocking the house he peered inside of. When his hook fastened onto an edge of the phone, Yao took advantage of the faint magnetic connection. Yanking his booty with ginger determination, slowly dragging it along the ground, past the dreaming owners, up the inside wall, and out. The mobile lit up and trembled in his hands just as he clasped it, an alarm surprising him. Yao juggled the phone in reflex, almost dropping the device, and his wiry extension as he simultaneously noted the reminder accompanying the alert. Exams. He jabbed the power button and scrambled toward the section of wall he had hopped over, past the window he had first looked into, finding nothing but a naked old woman sleeping next to a rotating fan. A light switched on. Now straddling the pillow he had used to smother the jutting shards of glass affixed along the top of the wall for security, Yao looked back momentarily. A man poked his head through the absent louvers and fraying net heaving with the anger of interrupted sleep and the shock of violation. He! Julo 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 He repeated the thievery charge in firing squad succession, shedding more grogginess with each declaration as he became increasingly infuriated. His rising decibel was a call to arms, a desperate rallying cry to his neighbors and the watchmen that manned the mix of modest bungalows and code flouting mansions that dwarfed the domicile Yao had picked, because it had no guardhouse or dogs. A distant Doberman barked, but no one emerged from the adjacent watchhouses or visitor gates. It was two hours before dawn, when sleep most resembles death, the time night security snore in peace. It was also the part of East Lagon that had managed to maintain an, uh, its quiet neighborhood aspirations, even after Boundary Road was paved to connect it to the motorway, and a spree of new construction had changed the area's topography. Chiashi had become a sprawling grid, a sprawling grid of mansions and newly built townhouses, complete with companion signboards advertising US dollar asking prices and protected by a firewall of amenities for expats. International schools, corner provision shops and passion project clothing boutiques hid and hemmed the movements of the shanty town Chiashi had taken its name from, and the residents that pre- predated the gentrification. Lagos Avenue, with its bars, outdoor eateries, ATMs, and nearby mall, was a minutes-long drive from Shiashi, a long enough walk that it kept revelers, riffraff, and the prostitutes' patrons out, unless they were coming home. This was why Yao had gone in. Now, on the street side of the wall, the mobile in his pocket, adrenaline-lacing his blood, Yao sprinted away, his extended hanger and punctured pillow in tow. Somewhere between the French Embassy Lycée and the ANC Mall, he started laughing. The mirth cum bravado of relief escaped him in dog-throated guffaws, pooling in his eyes. He moved the pillow to the hand that held the deformed wire and felt for his phone. His spontaneous howls ebbing to intermittent wheezing and gulping sounds as he recalled the naked old woman he had spied. The Abriwa's legs had been spread and twisted like his hanger, stuffed and misshapen like his pillow. He had watched her roll over, the moonlight illuminating breasts with the, loose hef- with the loose heft of fufu as they slid into her armpits. Before he remembered his mission and moved to the next window in search of a valuable left out that could be easily pocketed. Now, Yao shook with a renewed stream of cynical giggles at the thought of making the grandmother munch her pillow as he drilled himself inside her her rotating fan their only witness a hissing sound interrupted his brutal reverie the serpentine call had come from a woman sitting on the steps of the closed mall the light from the adjacent filling station and an overhead security beam making an eerily frizzy halo of her wig the short hairs had the plastic pluck and ambition of a storefront boutique mannequin Her outfit was as elegantly garish, a t-shirt bearing the bedazzled noun verb flirt, and similarly spangled jeans that tapered above platform stiletto sandals. Prostitute, he decided, with a mix of condemnation and arousal. He stopped to look her over from his position across the street and yanked the waistband of her jeans to her shoes in his mind. His penis stirred at the thought, pushing against the zipper of his shorts. He waited for a taxi to pass before padding over to her, still clutching the pillow and extended hanger. The girl sat as stoic as the Kwame Nkrumah statue in the new Dubai park near Circle. Dubbed so, Yao assumed, because the United Arab Emirates city was also awash in blue floodlights. Only her eyes darted, from the rectangle in his pocket to the burglar's accessories he carried. You've come to sleep or to clear a drain, she asked, when he stood in front of her. What do you have in your pocket? smiling yao rehearsed a line of dialogue he had heard on atrasal a brazilian soap opera that always seemed to be on at the salon next to the construction site he shared a room in something big for you that's for me to find out the girl replied she had apparently watched the same episode her accent morphing to match the baby pitched english of the actors who voiced over the portuguese speaking talent he brought himself closer dropping the pillow and hanger she stood slighter she stood, slighter than she had looked, sitting with her knees grazing her breasts, and shorter even in her platform stilts. Her wig at his chest he fixated on the fake patch of scalp the hairs radiated around as her hand reached for his bulge. Ash <laughs> Yao tore away from her in pain, but she had let go first, skipping away into the taxi that had passed moments for moments before, taking the rectangle in his pocket with her. Thank you.
0: Give it up for Nana. Thank you. Okay. Um, We've been promising in our social media lead up in last month that it's going to be a multimedia presentation this month. Here you go. Ariel Schrag is the author of the novel Adam and the graphic memoirs Awkward, Definition, Potential, and Likewise. And the graphic memoir, part of it, published today as witnessed by our song, Yes. Potential was nominated for an Eisner Award and likewise was nominated for a Lambda Literary Award. Shrag has written for TV series on HBO and Showtime. She lives in Brooklyn. She made it all the way to Queens (laughs) to be here with us tonight. Um, Publishers Weekly calls part of it an inviting collection and says Shrag is skilled at immersing the reader in her memories in a way that feels real and unforced, as if her audience were her teenage friends gossiping in a bedroom, or college kids figuring out collectively where to stand at a party. Let's give it up for Ariel Schrag.
3: Thank you so much for having me, and that was a really um, wonderful uh, birthday pub day. Uh, just, uh, I'm just really happy to be here and, and celebrating it with you guys, so thank you. Um so a Queens anecdote. Um I have a one and a half year old and I recently brought him to Queens for the first time last week. We were flying into LaGuardia and he projectile vomited seven times during the descent. <laughs> Um we so this was my wife and I were sitting with him and we were on the inside so we were at the window seat middle seat and then there was this man next to us. And so when Robbie my son you know vomited we were suddenly just entirely covered in this orange goo. And he he had never really thrown up like this before. And so he was crying because he was terrified that he'd suddenly learned his body could do this. Um, and you'd think that the man next to us would like say, oh, can I get you a napkin or can I help? But no, he just kind of inched over to make sure that none of the piles and piles of vomit covering us would get on him. And we had like the little napkins that you get your drink, served with your drink and didn't, wasn't doing much. And so there was just kind of this awkward like five minutes where we were literally just sitting there covered in vomit with the screaming baby with him like sitting there with his earbuds in. And eventually I was just like, um... Excuse me, you think I could get out to to get some napkins? And so he just kind of gets up. He hasn't acknowledged that it's happened. It's like if you said it out loud, it would make it real or something. Um, So I get up and I go and I get some napkins and we clean it all up. I mean, you know, we do our best. And it seems like it's calmed down. And I take Robbie onto my lap and I kind of move him out to the side so he can get some fresh air so he's not just staring at the back of the seats. And he vomits again, but this time onto the man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and we land in Queens. <laughs>
0: um.
3: So that's, yeah, that's my queen story. And this is a short story from my book part of it, which is a collection of autobiographical stories spanning my childhood through mid-twenties. And, um, this story falls kind of in the middle, around when I am 23. My troubles with glasses. It all began one night in December of 2003, my first year after graduating college. I was working studiously at my desk when I casually took off my glasses to rub, rub away some smudge with my shirt. Snap. It seemed almost inconceivable These glasses were my trusty steadfasts. They'd been with me for years. Five, to be exact. I bought them my first year in New York after my others were crushed during a fit of passion. (laughs) The buying of the new glasses back then had been relatively painless. I'd gone to LensCrafters and picked out the most similar-looking black plastic pair. True, these ones had mildly traumatizing golden dots on the stems why? But after a week or so, I forgot all about this slight imperfection, and the glasses melded perfectly into a part of me. I told myself it was, n- it was now time to make that change again. It would be fun. I'd find a new pair, and maybe this time they wouldn't even have the annoying golden dots. As for right now, I'd just get by with superglue. As it turned out, the superglue was hardier than I'd expected, and I was able to wait the three weeks till I went back to California for the holidays, where I hoped my mom would help pay for a new pair. I don't know, I mean, I think glasses are still something it makes sense for you to help with. I mean, don't you think, Mom? It's fine. I need new shoes! When we went to the Berkeley Lens Crafters, however, the selection was far from what I'd expected. After about an hour of deliberation, I finally settled on what seemed to be the pair closest to my last. I mean, they're a little square, but but they look good, Mom, right? Mom, they look fine. At home, however, my sister assured me that they were not fine. Valerie, what? I'm not going to lie. They're sass. Sass. Not only that, but I realized when I drew, I could totally see the black line of the frame. Too embarrassed to tell my mom I had to return them because of sass, I stuck to the visual impairment. My livelihood was being impeded. She's an artist, and she can't wear them because the frame is visible when she draws. Hmm. So it was, I returned to New York with my super-glued old glasses and a new six-month supply of contacts. It's like I'm being forced to be more attractive. For the next seven months, I wore contacts outside, glasses inside, super gluing every two weeks as needed. Sometimes I thought about looking for a new pair of glasses, but the memory of sass still haunted me, and I became accustomed to my contacts super glue routine. Until one day, the superglue stopped working. I tried reapplying and holding them together for 15 minutes. Didn't work. Reapplying and holding for 25 minutes. Didn't work. Reapplying and holding for the entire length of the Eminem show album. Still didn't work. Finally, I tried hacking away at all the dried old superglue with an exacto knife and then reapplying. No good. I was without glasses. The day after my glasses broke for good, I was on a bus driving up to rural Maine to spend the week helping my mom and sister take care of my grandmother at her summer house. I decided I would just have to wear contacts for most of the time and go blind when my eyes were tired. Since I would only be around family in the woods, it shouldn't be a problem. There was, in fact, something I really liked about being extremely nearsighted. It was like I could exist in two separate universes. City has sunk underwater. During my blind days in junior high, I used to imagine that I was developing my other senses at an accelerated rate. Get her to the ER! Why are you facing over there? It is easier for me to understand this way. (laughs) My vision was ten times worse now than it had been back then, and I imagined myself in Maine, resharpening my old skills. Hark! A loon! Really? I don't hear it. When I arrived in Maine, however, all romantic ideas about being blind were forgotten and replaced by a sudden, desperate need to be mothered and taken care of. Ariel! Mom, I need you to fix my glasses! That night, my mom spent three hours coming up with some elaborate thread, cardboard, superglue method of holding together the glasses. I, meanwhile, did impressions of my roommate's restless cat, Mumford, for my sister. Mumford can't settle! Ha! I knew I could do it. How do they work? Um, they don't really stay on my face. Sorry. I am going to bed, so you will please need to not talk so loud. I figured I would just go back to the being blind plan, but the next morning, my mom was all business about going to buy me new glasses. It felt wrong. Wrong. This was not how I was supposed to buy new ones. It was only a week. I could wait and get them in New York, but mom was in control. Mom was taking care. The nearest glasses store is an hour and a half away. We'll be back around 4.30. So I did it. If the Lens Crafters in Berkeley was bad, I couldn't begin to explain this tiny shop tucked away in a woodland crevice of rural Maine. Plastic frames of any kind were not even an option here. Yet despite the limited selection, it still took me over an hour to settle on a thin, round, wireframe Brooks Brothers pair. We do all the work right here at the shop, but there's only two of us. We should have them by tomorrow. All right. I decided that not being able to choose another black plastic pair was a sign. Wireframes were the new me. Away with this indie rock pseudo film director bullshit. These were respectable and practical. Just glasses. Simply glasses. You know, I feel really good about these new glasses. I was just thinking the same thing. But about an hour after we got home, I started to have a little problem. Why can't I seem to stop thinking about those glasses? After dinner, I decided to send my best friend Sam a light-hearted text message, just to get some reassurance. I got some nerdy wireframes. What had I done? <laughs> As I got into bed, everything was a blur of glasses. What had I been thinking? Why didn't I just wait? There was nothing I could do now. There was nothing I could do. I would just have to deal. I was nerd now. No, no. What was I thinking? They were wrong. Wrong. Why couldn't I go back? I couldn't go back. These were my glasses. This was my future. Just deal. Don't think about it. Forget about it. Don't think about it. I woke up in the morning with glasses glued to the inside of my brain. In a last desperate attempt, I sent Sam another text. Look, I just really need your support with these glasses, okay? (laughs) I sat down to breakfast, deeply, horridly ashamed. So we're going into Ellsworth to pick up Ariel's glasses, and we'll get something for dinner in Bar Harbor on the way back. I don't want to pick up the glasses. No one heard me. I think I need to return the glasses. WHAT?! Ariel, don't be ridiculous. This whole thing with the glasses has been ridiculous. You don't understand. It's not that easy. It's the only thing I can think about. I understand. Well, I'm sorry. I didn't realize you were that crazy. Well, I am. So I returned the glasses. I I just decided I don't want them. But the glass is already cut. We normally don't have a return policy like this. I I mean, I suppose we can refund you, but we'd be making an exception. Thank you. I'm sorry, Mom. I'm so sorry. It's okay. I, I just don't think I'll be going with you to buy any more glasses. Come on, Ariel, let's go out in the boat. Free of the glasses, the world had never looked so glorious. When I got back to New York, I decided this time I was absolutely going to do things right. I arranged a date in which the whole day was free for me and Sam to go to the largest lens crafters in the city. I even arrived two hours before she was meeting me so that I could make preliminary judgments. When Sam arrived, we stayed for another three hours. Okay, so is thinking these are the best? No. The guy here recommended these? No. Are you sure I shouldn't do wireframes? Yes. I look like a genius in these, don't I? These make me look like a genius. Do they make me look like a genius? No. To Williamsburg. To Dyke Rock. To Lauren Siegel. Finally, Sam convinced me that the best bet was a pair of tan, slightly iridescent Armani frames. You're sure they're not too iridescent? It's barely noticeable. Trust me, those are the best. These really make me do look like a genius. Should I just buy them with clear glass? That will be $2.90, credit or debit the decision was made. I should have felt free, liberated. But instead, when I went back the next day to pick up the finished glasses, the truth was undeniably locked. So, uh, what color would you say these glasses are? I had just purchased purple, shimmery, sparkling, iridescent glasses, That night, I went to see the movie A Home at the End of the World with my friends, Magda and Lou. I was unable to think of anything other than the character's glasses. Oh, shit, I gotta go. Yeah, yeah, I got it. Hmm, so as a teenager, he wore the 70s large line across the top gold wire frames, which went great with the long hair. Now he's wearing round black wire plastic. I think I detect nose pads. Wire. They're sort of owlish, but they complicate the face just right. Now, his boss has orange plastic frames... How perfect they were for each of them, and how unbelievably wrong mine were for me. There are many pairs of glasses to come.
0: That's today's show. If you like what you heard, tell a friend or leave a review wherever you found us. Special thanks to LIC Bar, the Astoria Bookshop, and our amazing intern Nadine Santoro. A big thank you to our sponsors over the years, LIC Corner Café, Sweetleaf Coffee, Court Square Diner, and The Gantry Restaurant. This episode was recorded by Carl Jacob and mixed and edited by Justin Alvarez. Our theme music is by Pat Irwin. The LIC Reading Series is made possible in part by the Queen's Council on the Arts with public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. I'm your host, Catherine Lasota. See you next time in Queens.